Have you ever watched a parent who threatens punishment if their child keeps doing something wrong but never carries through with it? It's usually clear that the child has heard it all before and knows rightly that punishment is never going to come and so acts accordingly. How do, you, how do you tend to feel about a parent like that? So we don't ha- have a huge amount of respect for them, do we? But some think that God is like that, that, that though God threatens judgment, he'll never really bring it about. And as we've seen previously, that was one of the things that Peter's readers were, were being told or would soon be hearing Chapter 3, verse 3, tells us of scoffers who are going to come and say, Where is the promise of his coming? For all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But in this middle section of chapter 2, Peter makes it absolutely clear that God will punish unbelievers. All things won't continue on as they have been doing from the beginning of creation. Because there is a day of judgment coming. Peter's talking first and foremost here about false teachers being punished. Uh, But what is true of false teachers is also true of all the ungodly, as they're called in verse 5, and the unrighteous, as they're called in verse 9. The fact that there is so much about judgment in 2 Peter means that it's one of the least studied New Testament letters It's been called the the Cinderella of the New Testament, uh, the one that gets forgotten about. Because people think, who wants to to think about judgment? But actually, any time we read about threatened judgment in the Bible, it should make us think about how kind God is. Because by threatening judgment, he's giving opportunity to all who hear to repent. So hearing about judgment is good news even for an unbeliever because each warning about judgment is another opportunity for them to repent. But hearing about certain judgments, particularly of false teachers as it is here, is a good thing for believers as well. Some of God's people know all too well the damage that false teachers can do. This isn't theory for many of God's people. They know the damage that false teachers can do to families, that they can do to churches, that they can do to the reputation of the gospel in a community. And what a relief it is to be reassured here that unrepentant false teachers will not get away with it. I'm sure we all know of people in this community or or in another community uh, where we're part of or were part of I'm sure we all know of people there who've committed some crime and perhaps it's, it's gone to trial and yeah, they've got away with it even though everyone knows that they did it uh, and they, they smirk as they leave the courtroom because they know they've got away with it. But God's judgment isn't like that because God's justice is true justice. One day all those who've escaped punishment here on earth will realise that they can't escape God's judgment. And that is a great thing. 
And it should be a freeing thing for us as believers as well. Because if we didn't know that judgment was coming, we could so, so easily become consumed by, by something that had been done to us or, or been done to a family member, as many people around us are. But the reality of God's justice reassures us that what's happened to, to us or to a loved one won't go unpunished. And it also reassures us that those who have done great damage to the church of Jesus Christ won't escape justice either. We were talking about a Bible study the other week about those who are just devastated by the damage that's done to a church that they have invested their life in. Either by, by a false teacher or by someone who was teaching the truth but ha- had some secret sin that then came out and, and just uh, discredited the whole thing. Uh, um, perhaps uh, that man seems to have largely gotten away with it. But one of the things that will help God's people keep going is knowing that judgment will come if that false teacher does not repent. So people might think focusing on, on judgment is an unhealthy thing. But actually the, the unhealthy thing is having this, this festering thing that we can never let go of because we can't leave it to the judgment of God. Or we don't realise that we can leave it to the judgment of God. A, a final reason why the theme of judgment isn't one we should try and avoid is that the day of judgment for the wicked will be the day of salvation for God's people. On the calendar, it's one day. There's, there's not a day of judgment for the wicked and then a day of salvation for God's people. We see examples of that here in the verses in front of us with Noah and Lot. Think of what it would have meant for them to live day after day, week after week, year after year among scoffers and unbelievers. With no other believers in their communities outside their own families. Uh, with, with sin having... Uh, made its way into their their own families as as well in in devastating ways. But what did the the day of judgment for those communities mean for them? What did the the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah mean for Lot? What did the floods mean for Noah? Well, ultimately, they, they both meant freedom, salvation, For Noah particularly, judgment on the wicked meant entering a new world for him and his family. And so the the title I'm giving tonight's sermon is The God Who Judges and Saves. The God Who Judges and Saves. Because God's great acts of judgment on the wicked in history are also acts of salvation for those who are trusting in Christ. We'll, we'll come back to look at that again at the end today. But, but for now, uh, and what we'll spend most of our time on, uh, Peter gives three examples from history which will help reassure us of the certainty of God's judgment uh, for those times when it looks like it's never going to come. Uh, and we're going to look at, it, at each one of those three in, term, in turn uh, to, to help reassure us that God isn't actually like the parent who threatens punishment but never follows through with it. 
Peter's closing words in verse 3, uh, where we finished the last time, uh, where their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And now uh, Peter gives us three examples which help boost our confidence in that. So three, three examples, firstly rebellious angels, then the flood, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. So firstly, rebellious angels in verse 4. Peter uses three examples from history to say that if God punished sin back then, we can be certain that he will do so in the future as well. And the first example comes from before the creation of the world, when the angels rebelled against God. Or at least that would be the, the natural way to interpret it if we didn't know that the Jewish tradition, which Peter would have been familiar with, taught about a second fall of the angels. Uh, according to Jewish tradition, that the sons of God, who we read about in Genesis 6, who married daughters of men, were actually angels. Um, because of their sinful lust, those angels were punished by God. And they were then bound under the earth to await the day of judgment. Uh, and that story where it's recorded in Jewish tradition, it's recorded in language very similar to the language Peter uses here. Uh, and almost all commentators today would say that this is what Peter is referring to. Uh, the story comes from the book of, of one Enoch. It's not a biblical book, but it, but it is a book that Jude quotes from. And Jude and Second Peter are, are, are very closely related my problem with that, however, is that it seems a, a fanciful way of understanding what Genesis 6 is about. I think the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6 is much more likely to refer to intermarriage between the godly and ungodly lines. And if Peter does refer to Jewish tradition here, which it, which it seems he does, it doesn't mean that he believes it he may be simply using language his readers would have been familiar with to describe an earlier rebellion of the angels before uh, the world was created but but let's focus on what we do know uh, because we do know for sure that satan was originally an angel who rebelled against god uh, God didn't create Satan as evil. He would have been an angel originally. We have allusions to that at least in places like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But at some point before Satan came and tempted Eve, he obviously rebelled and fell from heaven. And so I still take Peter as referring here in verse 4 to that angelic rebellion that happened before the world was created but either way whichever rebellion of angels that peter is referring to the big point is clear and that is that god did not spare angels when they rebelled for one sin the angels were thrown down thrown down into hell or thrown down out of, out of heaven and reserved for the coming judgment. Think of how many sins you've committed today. How many sins you've committed this past week, this past year. 
Yet up until the very moment they rebelled, these angels had been sinless. They once offered ceaseless praise and worship before the face of God. In all the years of their existence, they had never had so much as a sinful thought. Yet one day they rebelled, and that was it. God cast them down and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And there's a real sense from the demons who Jesus encountered when he was on earth that they knew the judgment was coming. In Matthew 8 they cry out, Have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew their judgment was certain. And the only thing they, they disputed over was the time it would happen. And Peter's point is simple. If God didn't spare angels, he won't spare us. Fallen angels, as Spurgeon once put it, are a warning to fallen men. Fallen angels are a warning to fallen men. And yet, of course, the big difference is that for angels, there was no way back. Angels don't have a saviour. For angels, one sin, and that was it. The fact that God judges fallen angels tells us that he will judge fallen men too. But only if they don't repent. And that's what his desire for humanity is. He has provided a way out, but if we don't take it, judgment is certain. So firstly tonight, the, the first example which tells us that judgment is certain is the fall of the angels. The second example is the flood. God didn't spare angels before the creation of the world, but neither did he spare the ancient world when it sinned, when it became corrupt. Uh, and by the ancient world, Peter just means the world before the flood. This time there's no doubt that Peter is referring to Genesis 6. Now boys and girls, you know the story of the flood of God sending the flood. And do you know why God sent the flood? Well, God sent the flood because men and women were wicked. They didn't love God. They didn't obey him. In fact, the Bible tells us that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And because of that, God sent the flood. Back in 2012, there was controversy when a new visitor centre was opened at the Giants Causeway in Northern Ireland. An audio exhibit said that young earth creationists believed that the earth was created 6,000 years ago. Uh, and it presumably linked the formation of the rocks at the Giant's Causeway to the flood of Noah's day. But after an intervention by Richard Dawkins, among others, it was changed. Uh, no, we can't even, even leave, out, leave in the, the, the suggestion that the people believe that, that, that the causeway was, was caused by a, a global flood that God once sent on the world. That's 2012. Fast forward 10 years and there was a headline in the Belfast Telegraph earlier this month which without any sense of irony declared shape of rocks at Giant's Causeway formed in just days not centuries new theory suggests. 
The previous theory that the rocks have been formed over thousands of years have been prominent since 1940. In 2018, a previous study even recreated it in, in a lab. But now the curator of the National Museums of Northern Ireland is saying, forget about the idea that it happened over thousands of years. It happened in just a few days. And some of, us, some of us anyway are left thinking, well, well, I wonder what sort of momentous event could have happened that formed the Giant's Causeway in just a few days. But unbelievers don't, don't want to talk about even the possibility that it could have been caused by a global flood. Because they don't want to think about the fact that God did not spare the ancient world when the ancient world was committing the very same sins that they are committing. And the message is clear. If God did not spare the ancient world, he won't spare those who likewise try and throw off God's authority today. But that's just one side of the coin when it comes to the flood. Because uh, as verse 9 here shows us, uh, the, the flood tells us that the Lord also knows how to rescue the godly from trials. It may be that the skeptics of Peter's day were saying that there can't be a final judgment. And, well, they were saying that there won't be a final judgment. Perhaps, perhaps their reasoning went like this, that if there is a final judgment, God would have to either judge everyone or save everyone. And it wouldn't be fair to judge everyone and it wouldn't be fair to save everyone. And so there can't be a final judgment uh, because either way it wouldn't be fair. And so morally God couldn't do it. But what Peter is showing us here is that one event can do two things. One event can do two things. Uh, That through one event God could both judge the wicked and save those who had faith in him. After all, that's what happened in the past. At the flood, the wicked were drowned, but righteous Noah was saved along with his household. And as we'll see later, it's the same with Sodom and Gomorrah. Their destruction means salvation for Lot. Second Peter is the one place in the Bible where we're told that Noah was a preacher, a herald of righteousness, as we're told here. He didn't just build his boat, but he pleaded with people to flee from the wrath to come. And are we not in the same position today? We're pleading with people to flee from the wrath to come. Something else that's interesting here and which doesn't come across in many of our translations, is that in verse 5, Noah is literally called the eighth. Uh, Most of our translations will say something that Noah, he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, uh, but but literally Noah is called the eighth. Uh, Numbers in the Bible are, are not always significant, but they're often significant. And eight in the Bible represents new life. When were were Jewish boys circumcised on the eighth day? It it symbolized the cutting off of sin and new life in the family of God. Also in in the Old Testament, you had special religious festivals which took place on the eighth day. 
Uh, that's something to keep an eye out if you're reading the Old Testament mention of the eighth day. If something happens on the eighth day of a, of a seven-day cycle, then it's a picture of something new and something fresh. Something that actually points forward to the new creation. And then, of course, Jesus rises from the dead on the first day of the week, which is also the eighth day of the old week. And so the fact that there were eight people on the ark rather than seven or or nine is significant. Especially so because Noah is the one who's described as the eighth. The natural way to count Noah, if you're listing all those on the ark, well, what, what position would you count Noah? You count him as number one. If you're counting the people on the ark, you say Noah, number one, Mrs. Noah, number two, Shem, number three. Uh, whatever way you counted the people on the ark, whether you count Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then their wives, or Shem and, and his wife, and Ham and his wife, whatever way, way you count it, Noah only ends up as the eighth if there's some significance to that. And there is, because after the flood, Noah is like a new Adam, stepping out into a new world. In fact, back when I preached on Genesis 8, a a number of years ago, I literally called the sermon, A a New Adam Leads His People Into a New World. Uh, And that's before I'd even noticed uh, that that 2 Peter uh, literally here calls Noah the eighth. Because even without this reference, there's so much in the Genesis account that encourages us to see Noah as a new Adam. That that there is the the old world in a sense and there is the the new world with Noah. Uh, The ancient world as it's called here. What's the, the relevance of all this to the passage in front of us? It's that the Lord is able to rescue the godly from trials and that he will do that by bringing us into a new world one day, the new heavens and the new earth. But unlike Noah's new world, sin won't have survived the flood of judgment that has just been released. So the second example which tells us that judgment is certain is the flood. Uh, But that example also tells us that salvation is certain too. If God had only used examples about angels, there would have been no salvation. But now he he uses examples involving human beings. Yes, there is judgment, but there is also salvation. Because uh, one day there would come one born in human flesh. Then the third and final example that that, that Peter calls us to remember is that of Sodom and Gomorrah. So having considered God's judgment on the rebellious angels, having then looked at God's judgment of the ancient world through the flood, we come thirdly and finally to Sodom and Gomorrah. What types of sins will God judge? Well, all sins. But are there particular sins that will mark a group of people out as ripe for judgment? Are there particular sins that when we see them, we know that that judgment is not far away? Well, verse 7 here mentions the sensuality of those in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And then verse 10 says that God will especially punish those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So, so to, to, to sum up those two verses, you have two sins highlighted here. One is sexual sin, and uh, the other is despising authority. It's obvious where sexual sin comes in as a reference to what happened in Sodom. It's literally where we get the word sodomy from. Sexual sin is also there in Genesis 6 in the lead up to the flood. Because whatever way you take the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, whether it's angels marrying humans or believers marrying unbelievers, they're marriages that should never have taken place. And those marriages lead to increasing wickedness on the earth, which leads to the flood. So in that way, verse 10 serves as a summary of all three incidents. When Peter warns of those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. All, all three acts of judgment, there, there, there was a, a sexual sin that led to it. But what about the despising of authority? At first glance it maybe seems a bit random. uh, That it's not built on on these historical examples. But the angels who rebelled they despised God's authority. Or, Or as Jude puts it they did not stay within their own position of authority. But left their proper dwelling. Then at the flood those who were punished they, they obviously despise God's authority. Uh, and they also refuse to listen to the authoritative preaching of Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Yeah, and then at Sodom, is there anything in, in the Genesis account that would suggest that, that, that part of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was despising authority? Well, I think we, we do actually have something in Genesis 19. Uh, the chapter tells us about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and it starts off by saying that two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And do you remember where Lot was when they came? Well, he, he was sitting in the gate of Sodom, uh, Genesis 19.1. Which would have been like, like a gatehouse where the rulers of the town would have sat. Uh, We saw that when we looked at Ruth chapter 4. We're we're told uh, specifically there about the elders of the city were were sitting at the gate. Uh, And and so uh, it may may well be that Lot had some sort of authority in the city. Uh, And so if that is the case for the men of Sodom to try and attack Lot's visitors, it wasn't just sexual perversity though it clearly was to a horrific extent but their sin may also have included despising one who was meant to be an authority over them verse 7 of our chapter here in second peter tells us that lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked verse 8 tells us that as he lived among them he was tormenting his righteous soul over what they were doing And we don't really get much of a sense of that as we read about Lot in Genesis. Unlike Abraham who who never forgot that he was a pilgrim, Lot settled down in Sodom and seemed seemed to be fairly comfortable there. 
But, but could it be, and I'm just throwing this out there, could it be that his sitting at the gate of the town was his attempt to try and get involved and turn things around? Now that's just speculation really, or at least it's an attempt to see where, where Peter might get verses 7 and 8 from based on Genesis. But of course Peter is directly inspired by God, so he's not, he's not limited to what, what earlier scripture tells us. Uh, but, but I think we can uh, have more confidence that, that, that despising authority also uh, applies to Lot. Uh, that even if he had no official authority, he had a moral authority that they should have listened to. But the point is that the, the sins that are picked out from the three historical events are sexual sin and despising authority. And is that not a, a pretty accurate description of our own society? Sexual sin is not only rampant, but it's celebrated. And people despise authority. They despise the authority of teachers, of police, of government, of the church. If you were to, to go out uh, tomorrow on the streets or into, into a coffee shop and, and say that Britain is broken... I don't think you would have too many people who would disagree with that statement. Britain is broken. But why is it broken? Is it broken because we had one set of politicians rather than another? Is it broken because we had one Prime Minister chosen rather than another? No, Britain is broken because of sin. Because we have chosen to serve ourselves rather than God. And what is the evidence of this brokenness? Is it that the economy is a dumpster fire? Is it the prices of things in the supermarket going up and up? Well, those, those things may well tie in, but, but fundamentally the evidence of the brokenness of our society is that society celebrates the indulging of the lust of defiling passion and it despises authority. And so a new prime minister, a new budget, a general election, none of them are going to solve that. The more our society opposes the Lord and his Christ, the more certain its destruction is. Uh, the more certain its, its fall is, just like the, the Roman Empire, which became so, so decadent uh, and, and so much sexual sin in the Roman Empire, and it fell. Uh, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, who here in verse 6 were turned to ashes and condemned to extinction. Our society thinks it will get places by opposing God, uh, but... We have a six-week-old six baby who managed to outlast a prime minister. What do politicians think they will be able to do if they go up against God? I think about the disintegration of society. It's not the most cheerful thing for a Sunday evening as we muster ourselves to go back into the world tomorrow. And yet this coming judgment will be our salvation. Just as God's bringing judgment on the ancient world meant that Noah entered a new world, just as God raining down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah led to Lot finally getting out of that toxic atmosphere, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Uh, 
That's true for you on an individual level. The Lord knows how to rescue you from trials. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And that's true as well for the people of God as a whole. We look out at broken Britain, we look out at the the turmoil in the world, and we say all things must work together for our salvation. Noah and Lot went through many painful years. Uh, they, They suffered much at the hands of the unbelievers around them. But looking back at the end of their lives, they would have been able to see God's wisdom in it all. And one day, too, we will be able to do the same. The judgment on the world, which it so clearly deserves, will be the, the salvation of God's people. And as we think about God's judging and saving, as we, we draw things to a close tonight, let's keep the cross in view. If Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, how much more so was our Lord Jesus? And yet he patiently lived among us for 33 years. And then he went to the cross where he experienced judgment and brought salvation. He experienced the judgment due to us for our sins. And as a result, he brought about our salvation. And to end with a final if statement. We've had three if statements here. Uh, If if anyone's done computer programming, you'll know by if statements, if something, then something else. If God did not spare angels... If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, if he rescued righteous Lot. Uh, For our final one, we take it from Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen. Well, let's praise God in words which sum up many of the things we've been speaking about tonight from Psalm 28. Psalm 28, the first six verses. Verse 3, O drag me not away with those who practice wickedness and sin, who kindly to their neighbours speak, but harbour malice deep within. If the day of judgment had to either judge everyone or save everyone, we would be dragged away with the wicked, Uh, but we're not. Uh, Instead, we can pray, verse 4, that that God would repay them for their evil deeds, but knowing that we will have salvation. uh, Because, verse 6 over the page, he has heard our plea for mercy. Uh, that in Christ the Lord is our strength and shield, the one who sends us aid, the one who has sent us his own Son. And so, uh, verse 7, though they will not sing it, Therefore my heart is full of joy, my thanks to him I gladly sing. Verse 8, Lord, save your people, now we pray. Your own inheritance now bless, and be their shepherd, carry them forever in your faithfulness. The God who judges the wicked will save the righteous and he'll do it 
both at the same time at the return of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 28, the first six verses will stand to sing. 